This podcast contains general health information and shouldn't be relied on as medical advice. For health concerns, speak to your doctor. HCF doesn't endorse any statements or opinions made during the podcast. If the podcast makes you feel depressed or anxious and you need to talk to someone straight away, call Lifeline on 131114. When you embark on family life, you expect to head down the predictable road. Healthy kids and partner, good jobs with enough income to live a good life, as well as mainly good mental health. But sometimes life can catch you unaware with a thunderbolt from the blue. For Emily, the unexpected began with an induced labour and emergency C-section for her first child. Then she was put on bed rest for the second half of her pregnancy with twins. But it didn't end there, as once the twins were born, her partner was diagnosed with a brain tumour. Life would never be the same for Emily and her family. Let's talk about the unexpected and check in with our expert, Lydia Black, about parenting in the times of unforeseen change and upheaval. Hi, I'm Jessica Rowe, and welcome back to the Navigating Parenthood podcast, Imperfect Parents, brought to you by HCF, Australia's largest not-for-profit health fund. Emily Hammond is a mother of three kids under six. Her twins were born premature and her husband has been diagnosed with a brain tumour. He's going through treatment and studying. It is an understatement to say that Emily has a lot to deal with. Emily, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's lovely to see you. And that is a lot that's on your plate. Mm. Tell me about your family. It is busy at the moment. The five-year-old starts school in a few weeks and the three-year-old identical twins are at daycare today. So that's giving me a little bit of reprieve. Uh, My husband is studying. He is uh, sensitive to noise because of the brain tumour. So that makes having three uh, boisterous boys challenging. And the challenges didn't just begin when Carl, your husband, was diagnosed. Tell us about your first birth, I suppose, because there were some complications there. Yeah, so Harvey, our eldest, was uh, a week overdue and I was induced with him. That ended up being an emergency caesarean and that was very much unplanned. Harvey was fine, happy, healthy little boy, um, but it was a traumatic birth and I think that, you know, I probably did experience a little bit of postnatal depression following his birth. But uh, yeah, he was a happy, happy, healthy baby. And yeah, we moved on to the next phases of challenges after the birth. (laughs) That challenge though that you mentioned of postnatal depression, it Mm. is so common Mm. among new mums Mm. and also new dads they're discovering as well. And and having had postnatal depression Mm. myself, Mm. I understand the isolation Mm. that you can feel. If anyone is feeling slightly like something's up, Mm. I really urge people Mm. to put their hand up and and get some help. So 
getting back, to, though, to what you were saying, so your little one, things were sort of progressing mm. and then you were pregnant again. Yes. Yeah, so we had planned to have another child. I'd always really dreamt, I suppose, of having four children and I was happy to compromise with two and then we were blessed with three. Uh, so we found out that I was pregnant with twins identical twins. So that means that there's no family history. It's complete fluke by nature. Uh, was and I, were you frightened though when, or were you I worried, w- excited, probably all of that? I think I was just absolutely gobsmacked. I just never in my wildest dreams had I ever thought about twins. Felt really well. They were monitoring me very closely because it was twins. And then at 20 weeks, my cervix shortened. So essentially they stitch you shut. And uh, so then they put me on bed rest. So I was on bed rest, uh, full bed rest, so toileting privileges only. And uh, on bed rest for eight weeks. And then we went home to my parents' place in the Blue Mountains and I started having contractions. So I rang my obstetrician and he said, you need to go straight to the closest uh, NICU. Now NICU, what does that stand the for? The Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. What was going through your head though at this point? Because you've suddenly uh, been told yes. you have to get to this the emergency hospital. place. Maybe I, I didn't really maybe realise that they were going to come. And how old were they? How many weeks so old So at that now? point they were 28, uh, 28 weeks and four days. They managed to so delay the delivery for 48 hours, which they want to be able to do to get the steroid injection into you for the development of the baby's lungs. The birth itself was very rare. The Both babies were born in their sacs. So it's called a Cali birth. And that is apparently incredible, number one, to even get a Cali birth and number two, to have a twin Cali birth because they're both in their own individual sacs. It's a very peaceful and gentle birth for the babies, which is really lovely. How then did the next number of days and weeks unfold in the hospital? So you have to leave the babies at home, which is at the hospital, which is already, a, you know, that's a very abnormal thing to be leaving the hospital without your, without your children. And they, I was expressing the breast milk. So then I had to be there. I saw generally I was there throughout the whole day. I spent 11 weeks in the end going to the hospital every day from, you know, sort of seven till six, seven till seven, um, to be there with the babies and expressing milk. And then you've got little boy at home. How old yeah. was, was Harvey at the time? So he was two, two years and two months. So he was little. How, how did you cope during that time? I think I did have postnatal depression the first time. I definitely was being hit very hard by the hormones and the circumstances and the trauma, the trauma of it all. I do have very strong memories go, of going into the NICU and just crying and just being there, you know, crying with the babies in their humidity cribs. It was very, very, very hard. Um, I got, a, I had a social worker allocated to meet the hospital. The expressing of the milk nearly killed me and the were you tempted <clears throat> to stop that was there an option that you could have I I did eventually stop breastfeeding and transition to bottles once I got home so I had them I think I breastfed them for maybe 8 months and cuz I do think there's often a lot of pressure unfairly put on women 
to breastfeed when I don't think breast is necessarily best if you can't or if there are circumstances that mean it's not possible. I think fed fed is best and that needs to be the message that that really needs to be conveyed is that fed is best because if if you are breastfeeding and the baby is not getting enough and they're upset because they're not getting enough and they're trying to communicate to you that they're still hungry, then that is extremely stressful as a mother to not be able to deliver that milk. And for the the breastfeeding for me, expressing the milk was awful. Um, I, you know, I got nipple trauma. It was it was awful. Um, and you know, again, it, it some of the, some of the challenges surrounding it were, you know, they were not there obviously the babies. So normally if you had them with you, you'd be feeding them every three hours and they're crying. So you have to, but when you're at home and they're at the hospital and it's three o'clock in the morning and you're supposed to wake up to express, there was a number of occasions where I was just like, no, my sleep is more important right now. But having to make that decision and the guilt that goes with choosing the sleep over the milk, like, does your head in because you can't win? You can you? You cannot win. You can't. I was so exhausted. Um, I did tandem feed, which did feel like I was breastfeeding a two-headed octopus because there was just arms and legs <laughs> and like these little two heads, and it was just like, oh my god. Last breastfeed was a really lovely one, and I remember that being a lovely one and thinking, yes, okay, great, this is done now. And the bottle feeding was a it's a very very big choice. I think because of the pressure, um, but it was the right thing for them and, you know, they thrived as a result, I think, of me transitioning to the bottle. Already listening to what, what you've shared, Emily, it's enough for anyone, <laughs> but but of course for you the the difficulty, the, the heartache didn't mm. end there. Mm. Yes, so now uh, my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumour um, and had to have an emergency craniotomy. So we literally, we had a, coincidentally, we had an appointment for a, a different issue uh, for his back and he wasn't obviously feeling well because he had all these other symptoms and a very good GP. She sent us for a scan literally first thing the next morning. They discovered the the the, the tumour, the lesion on his brain and went from, yep, the scan to emergency straight in. They explained to us that he had the brain tumour and then that night he deteriorated and then they operated the following morning. So it was absolutely blindsided again. And uh, so he's just completed his uh, following diagnosis and the surgery, he had uh, six weeks, I think, five weeks of radiotherapy and then 12 months worth of chemotherapy. So he's just finished the 12 months of chemotherapy now. So how old then were the the twins when your husband was diagnosed and operated on? So 22-month-old twins and Harvey, who was three, had just turned, was about to turn three. And this happens to your family you must be wanting to scream, this is not fair. Haven't we had our share? <sighs> I kind of feel like in some ways going through the trauma that we went through with the twins helped with having the resilience and the knowledge to deal with what has happened to Carl. You know, going back to RPA was very traumatic, but I 
was familiar with it. I was knew some of the terms that they were using and I was like, okay, I'm kind of familiar with this, which isn't ideal, but again, maybe it's helping. I don't know. I kind of, I do try to think about why is this happening for me rather than why is this happening to me or to us? I mean, even one of the simple things is that my husband had thought about becoming a high school teacher for a very long period. He had been a corporate lawyer and he had the surgery and we had talked about him changing to a teaching career and he said, yes, yes, I'll do it in like 15 years. Okay. And then the diagnosis happened and he said, no, I need to do that now. You know, he got accepted and he's now doing his final trimester. So this whole year while he's been doing the chemotherapy, he's been doing the study and it's just been phenomenal, phenomenal how well he has done it. It's really given him something to do and, you know, it's given him a lot more time with the children and in the future that will give him more time with the children as well because as a corporate lawyer you work very long hours sometimes and, you know, as a high school teacher there will be a lot more flexibility hopefully in our lives. It's amazing that that he's been able to retrain as a teacher Mm. but what is life like now in terms of parenting? Because it sounds like from your husband's illness, there's a lot of responsibility Mm. that you are now assuming Mm. for your family. Mm. Uh, Yes, there is a lot of responsibility. I have tried, don't want it to sound selfish and I don't think it, it is not selfish, but I have tried very hard to put myself first because I know that I need to be able to manage myself to be able to cope with the scenario that we're now in. So I got a life coach and that really helped with sort of helping me to get through and figure out what I needed to do for me to get through that very challenging period. And what did you learn from the life coach? Um, I've, I'm, I took up meditation. I'm writing my daily gratitudes. I'm doing my journaling. I'm exercising. I feel like I'm doing all the things that I'm meant to be doing. Are you having a weep too sometimes? there is a lot of tears. Um, there is a lot of tears and that's very hard. And my five-year-old is particularly good now, actually, unfortunately, but good. Um, and he's very empathetic. Like he can, he will recognize now when mummy's having a, you know, a moment where she's not coping very well. And, um, you know, he, he's real sweetheart. He will come out and I, I was upset the other night and he came out and he's like, mummy, can I help you fold the clothes? And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> what a dumb. Darling heart. Oh. Um, but and how do you explain that then to your five-year-old? So for him it's quite different because he he came to the hospital after Carla had his surgery. You know, he saw the, the scar and everything. So he has really lived it, whereas the twins have been too young. I talked to Harvey about it a little bit and he understands that Daddy has a brain tumour and, you know, that, that that impacts daddy sometimes. It makes daddy feel tired. Um, but it's that sort of situation where if you ask a question, I'll answer it and I'll mention it sometimes, but we don't spend our entire days talking about brain tumours. As, as parents with you mm. and Carl, when you began your parenting journey and roles together, it's obviously different now. And how mm. do you deal with that? I think there's a lot of grief involved and I'm still very much grieving 
the the life that I thought that we would have and the life that is ahead of us and that and that that it, it's it's a process of grief because you know you have a vision of what your future is going to be and now that that future is different but but we're also living that future now <laughs> so even though you know we had a plan right now this is a different future to also what we had envisioned with him you know not being a lawyer anymore and doing teaching that's fast tracked that so now there are gifts that are coming out of this scenario i suppose and that's where you know where i talk about what what is this doing for us rather than you know why is this happening for us rather than why is this happening to us because i think that that is the difference that it makes so yeah it's it's actually a, a process of grief which is very challenging and do you find that you're able to ask for help or is it difficult to ask for help I have times when it is easier and times when it's harder, I think. I And why is that? <clears throat> I think I probably am very hard on myself in terms of what I should be able to cope with and then I have moments where I'll, you know, have conversations with people and they're like, yeah, but Emily, you know, you've got twins and you've got another one and they're all boys and your husband's got a brain tumour. That's not normal. And I'm like... Oh yeah, okay, that's right. People aren't actually other people are not living this and I think sometimes I get very caught in my own bubble and I come out and I'll go to somebody else's house and I'll see other people with their children and I'm like, "Oh, that seems so easy." Okay, relaxed. <laughs> so relaxed here. And it's like, <laughs> "Oh, yes, th- yeah, my life's not like that at all." Um so I I have very supportive friends. Um I I generally have two monthly dinners. So I have a monthly dinner with my high school girlfriends and then another monthly dinner with my uni girlfriends. And those are sort of two non-negotiables in my calendar that no matter what, I'm going to those dinners. So that is a very, very good support network to have. Emily, you've had quite a life up until this point. How have you changed as a person, but I suppose more importantly, as a parent? over this time? I think I definitely was a bit of a perfectionist before and that I have been very much trying to embrace the the concept of imperfectly perfect. I just need to accept that it's going to be messy and that it's never going to be tidy and that it's just always going to be messy and that it, it is okay sometimes if the, you know, if dinner is... Mince. I love uh, mince. Cut up veggies. ham. Toast. It's like toast. It's great for dinner. Those sorts of things. I'm like, okay, it's okay if they have that for dinner. That's okay. And I think even like for me, that's a big shift to being like, that's okay to have that for dinner. Again, fed is best. I think you're (laughs) an extraordinarily resilient, beautiful, brave, courageous Amazing woman. I want to know what's ahead for you. You you did the triathlon. That was a goal for you. <laughs> a goal. I am signed up to do the triathlon again. <laughs> I wrote my two friends into doing it with me, uh, my two high school friends. Uh, so that's really good. So for myself, I think part of it is very much me still trying to find more time for me. Uh, my career was very much put on hold uh, I went back to work after having had Harvey and then 
was put on bed rest with the twins and approached the company that I was working for to go back to work, said I wanted to go back part-time. They said, no, you had a full-time role before you left, come back full-time or resign, which was... I mean, they were within their rights uh, because they were offering me a job, uh, but with three children under three at the time, there was no way that I could be doing full-time. So I didn't end up going back to work. So it has taken me a while to figure out what I have really wanted to be investing my time in, and I got a few things <laughs> in the pipeline, um, but haven't really found so much time to dedicate to those yet. And that is one of the challenges, I suppose. And I spent a lot of last year being a caregiver and managing the children and, you know, helping Carl and managing Carl and taking him to doctor's appointments or being with him at doctor's appointments. And, um, yeah, I think that I, I have a plan, but... <laughs> <laughs> kind of time will tell. I cannot <laughs> wait to see and hear what that plan will be, Emily. Mm. You are a remarkable woman you. and your kids and your husband are very blessed to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It's now time to welcome Lydia Black, our psychologist. Lydia, I'm really keen to talk about this idea that life can throw us curveballs. I mean, Emily has had her fair share. Is there any way that we can prepare for the unexpected? No matter what we're doing, whether it's parenting, whether it's planning our day or looking at the weather forecast, we have to be ready for the unexpected. And one of the things that I like to um, talk to people about is to expect and accept and what I mean by that is expect that anything could come your way. Life, life is not a straightforward journey. And accept is about learning how to recognise that, you know, the stuff that shows up that's within our control, we can control, but there is so much that's outside of the realm of our control. And we put a lot of energy into thinking about those things, which can often be quite draining and unhelpful. We don't often learn about what we're made of until things are difficult. When life's great and cruising along, you don't really learn anything. But Emily very much spoke about the sorts of things that she'd learnt about herself that she didn't ex expect were there at all. But what about, though, the times when you're not feeling like you're learning or that you can get through it? You just feel defeated by all these things that are being thrown your way and that sense of, oh, no, not, not another thing. How can you manage when it does feel like this is just too hard? I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, look, I think it all starts with self-compassion. If we are forgiving and uh, compassionate towards ourselves when we recognise that we're struggling, our struggles actually don't then increase they tend to they tend to gradually over time um, improve if we beat ourselves up for having those really tricky times and not coping if we put ourselves down or tell ourselves that we should be coping you know when perhaps we're not we're likely to actually increase our suffering we're likely to keep ourselves in that place why do you think though it is that we find it hard, I know I find it hard to be compassionate to myself, that often I'll talk to myself in ways that I would never talk to my partner, my kids or my best friend. Why do we do that? It's human nature. It's absolutely human nature. And it's 
you know, to a degree, it's meant to be a helpful component of the human brain in that we recognise our weaknesses. We notice when we're, when we're stuffing up, so to speak. It's part of our sort of very much caveman brain that's, that's remained with us, which is very good at recognising our weaknesses and pointing them out with the aim to help us improve. But obviously, if it's happening all the time and it's happening in a very self-deprecating way, it will keep us stuck and it'll help, it'll reinforce that feeling of not being good enough, which we already all have that dialogue in the back of our head, I'm not good enough. And then these things are reinforced by society. They're reinforced by advertisements or Instagram posts or Facebook stories or whatever. Emily spoke very openly and movingly about how she burst into tears in front of her eldest son. And initially there was a part of her thinking, I shouldn't be doing doing this in front of him. As a mum, I need to have it all together. What do you think about that? I think it's really important that our kids see that we are human and that we all experience a full range of emotions. I think in those moments where we fall apart, so to speak, in front of our kids, it's actually a really wonderful modelling opportunity. As parents, we are constantly modelling to our children how to be as a human, (laughs) to be as an adult. It's so important that in those moments when we show strong emotion that we don't try to shame it or put it down or hide it or suppress it, particularly in front of our children. I think we need need to be able to say to our children, I'm having some big feelings right now and that's because I'm really upset, you know, or this has happened or that's happened. And often children will reach out. They will, they will offer their support, which is lovely and it's gorgeous. One thing to keep in mind is that in those moments, it's absolutely okay to share that you're experiencing big feelings. It's absolutely okay to say, you know, I'm really struggling right now. I'm, I'm really sad. But it's also really important to back it up with something along the lines of, I'm having a big cry right now, but I'm going to be okay because daddy or grandma or auntie Flo is going to make me a cup of tea and have a chat and we're going to be okay. And what that means is that that child doesn't feel like it's their responsibility to fix your problems as a grown-up. So letting them know, yep, I'm having a cry because I'm really sad, but I'm going to go and have a chat to so-and-so and I'm going to be okay. Thanks for your care, darling. Thanks for your hug or whatever it is that they're offering. That is such, I think, an essential point that you make, that you are allowing yourself to be vulnerable in front of your kids, but you're not then putting the onus onto them to fix you. And I think that's the thing that people really worry about is that I shouldn't be showing my children my emotions because I don't want them to worry. I don't want to give them my anxieties. And that's absolutely true. We don't want to be burdening our little ones with our own emotional ups and downs, but we want to model that we have emotions that we show our emotions, but then we have a strategy for dealing with our emotions. Sometimes, though, the unexpected can take the form of no longer seeing your partner for the person that you fell in love with. All of us change throughout our lives, and often we can change at a different pace to our partner, different priorities. How can we cope when that happens as a parent and you're within the family unit, but things are shifting and changing? Yeah, look, I think it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And, and it's not something that when we enter into um, relationships and the parenting role that we necessarily anticipate. You know, when we meet each other at the beginning of a relationship, whether it's a partnership or a marriage or, or, or whatever, we have an idea of who that person is then 
and we cannot anticipate the change that's going to occur. And of course, you know, like we were talking before, curveballs will, will, will come our way. And I think the most important thing when, when we notice that the person who we are parenting with is not the parent that we entered into the, into the agreement with is that you've also possibly gone through some changes. And I think the most important thing is some communication, you know, communicating about what we've recognised has changed, where we can seek help in, in, in areas where we might not be uh, lining up with that parent anymore. Obviously, in some situations, that's not going to be enough because the parent isn't able to meet us halfway for whatever reason. Perhaps they're not there, perhaps they're unwell. And I think that's when obviously our community becomes really important, reaching out to others around us, reaching out to to anyone we can who can be our backup, can be our support. So we know it's important to ask for help. That's part of, I think, caring for ourselves, self-care. Emily spoke about triathlons. That was what she would do to get through hard times. She'd set goals for herself. I'm not a runner, so the idea of doing a triathlon, I wouldn't find relaxing. But what are perhaps some other less arduous ways that people could be looking after themselves? Look, Jess, I think it's about catching moments when we can. I think, you know, we have this idea that um, self-care is a huge investment. And I think, therefore, we need to be able to find moments in our busy day, in our busy week, to slow down, to take a breath, to pause. Self-care doesn't have to be massive running expeditions it could be if that's your thing and you've got got the the opportunity to do that that's fantastic brilliant but if not if you are a single parent for example or you you don't have the 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 energy to get to the gym um finding moments where you can step outside take a deep breath notice the trees notice the birds notice the sounds around you those moments are also self-care But I think the most important thing to remember is that it doesn't have to be a huge investment of time. It's just taking time to recognise that you're allowed to step away from the busy chaos of day-to-day parenting and take a breath. And that's what it's about, isn't it? We need to give ourselves permission to do that. I know for me, I've found enormous joy and relief in, in just walking around our block with our, with our new puppy dog and suddenly seeing all these trees and um, flowers and the kookaburras in the tree that I'd never noticed before. And it's amazing what just that simple action in the half an hour does for my head. And what you've tapped into there, Jess, is being mindfully present. Our brain is often taking us on a journey of thinking and stressing and worrying. And as busy mums and dads, We're definitely thinking a lot about all the things that have to happen and obviously that can create stress. And so the key to being able to give your brain a break from that stress and give your body a break from that stress is to be able to come back into the present moment, to be mindfully present in the here and now, to get in touch with something in the real world, like you mentioned the trees and the birds and those sorts of things. It could just be the feeling of the seat under your butt. It could be anything at all. It could be the feeling of the dishes in your hands if you're standing at the, at the sink washing up revolting dishes. Oh, let's not do washing up. We're <laughs> <laughs> not to. <laughs> so it's being able to come back into the present moment and it allows the brain to shift. It allows the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that really triggers that fight or flight anxiety response, to sort of shift gears. And then our whole system can can come back into balance, basically. 
And it also allows us then to re-engage the frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that allows us to think clearly, think rationally, make good decisions. And so if you're emotional, that part of the brain is usually not really working very well. So to get present, to get mindfully present just for a couple of moments is the key to being able to come back into the real world, come back to the moment that you're in and then be able to shift into making good decisions. Oh, I feel more relaxed talking to you. What, though, I was wondering about as well is sometimes when we are busy, when we're frantic, when we're looking after everyone else, putting ourselves last, we can sometimes lose track of the fact that we are losing ourselves, that things are out of balance. Are there some signs or things that are important to be aware of as a parent that, hey, things are getting a little bit out of whack here? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and it's often one of the things that I find with pretty much every client that walks in the door in my office is I will say to them, you know, if they're suffering depression or anxiety or, you know, going through a hard time, I'll ask them, what did you used to do even as a child that brought you joy? What, what, what did you engage in? What was fun? And they'll say, oh, gosh, and, you know, they haven't thought about it for a long time. And I'm, what, are you doing any of that now? And the answer is usually no, I'm not doing any of those things. So that's one sign. If you've stopped having fun, if you've stopped doing the things that bring you joy, um, and, and as I said before, it doesn't have to be huge investments of time or money. It can be snaps, snapshots, moments where you can have fun. If those moments are not a part of your week then or, or, or month even, <laughs> I would say that's one sign. The other sign would be that if you're particularly irritable, snappy, um, you know, or, or withdrawing, withdrawing from people, withdrawing from the things that you, you know, the people that, that are important to you. Um, I think they're all really great signs. Lydia, thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Parenthood, Imperfect Parents. All this season's episodes are available now on your favourite podcast platform. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. Share it with your friends. For further information, head to hcf.com.au forward slash podcast for more information there on Psych2U and other useful links. Remember, if you're feeling depressed or anxious and need to talk to someone, call Lifeline on 131114. There's always help out there. Head to reachoutparents at parents.au.reachout.com or find excellent help with HCF's partner, Psych2U, an online telehealth psychological service for HCF members and all Australians at Psych2U HCF's health and wellbeing program shows uncommon care. Our holistic mental health and wellbeing program helps the whole family, giving eligible members quicker and easier access to the care they need. See hcf.com.au forward slash mental support for more. And if you've ever driven your kids to school in your pyjamas, I know I have, at least they've made it to school. I'm Jessica Rowe. Thanks for listening.